On today's episode of Tell Me What You Know, we aim to get a rise out of our audience with a little elevator talk. We'll start the conversation off with a little history, change floors quickly for elevator facts, then move on up to the penthouse for a discussion on some of the most unique elevators in the world. Finally, we'll get into what you should do should you be trapped in an elevator. Hopefully this episode isn't a letdown. And then, the Sultan of Swat, the King of Crash, the Great Bambino. Yes, we're talking about Yankee slugger and American hero, Babe Ruth. Why was his name Babe? It's actually George. How did he get all those nicknames? Did he actually call his shot to center field in the 1932 World Series? Well, folks, when the legend becomes fact, you print the legend. Stick around to hear all about this American icon on Tell Me What You Know. What's going on, everybody? Today is Wednesday, June 10th. This is episode 7 of the second season of Tell Me What You Know. How's it going? It's going well. It's going well. Yeah. Did you hear I found the uh, treasure in the Rocky Mountains? You found it. Yeah. Yeah. I've been out there. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, they found some the the guy who buried the treasure. Somebody can remember back in the treasure hunting episode. Uh, somebody had buried like a million bucks and gems and treasure yeah out in the rockies and somebody figured it out right yeah how long ago did he bury this stuff it's been i forget the exact back time when a million frame. dollars was worth the, the <laughs> hunt i guess it was no it was in like the last five to ten years okay yeah four people had died going after it uh-huh. um there was one clue i haven't actually gone into the full what, you like booby trapping or they just died searching died searching yeah yeah they didn't br- prepare for the elements or something, mm-hmm. or they'd fall and break their neck or something like that. Guys, Finn, is that his name? Yeah. Yeah. Forrest is Finn. He, he's still alive? or? Yes. Okay. He said that it, it was found. Gotcha. But I think the person who found it has decided to be unnamed. Yeah. So have, they, yeah. have they said where uh, like where it was discovered? I have not seen that. It I would was... imagine there's a lot of people who searched for it who would like to know how close they were. <laughs> yeah. Right? Maybe the uh, the the people who died were were very close. They just had to, they went over the wrong hill. Right. But like, uh, uh, like in Mr. Deeds, that guy just frozen next to it. I feel like right. <laughs> exactly. Like frozen up on the Mount Everest or something. Right. Yeah. Um, what's going on with you? Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> this quarantine is good. It's something. Yeah. <clears throat> but we're bringing the energy today. That's right. This is an escape. It's an escape. Welcome to your escape. That's right. We're going to talk about some very... Uh, we'll get, get your mind going with these topics today, I think. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm going back into history with mine. Oh, are you? Yeah. Well, I have a little history of mine as well. It's not really historical, but <laughs> <laughs> everything's got to start somewhere. Yeah. Right. Let's do it. All right, Michael. Tell me what you know about elevators. Ooh. <laughs> I feel like I, that's my common sound every time you say a topic. Ooh, <laughs> yeah, elevators. Very nice. Uh, I I often think about how they work whenever I'm riding in them. Mm-hmm. I'm like, does it take a lot of energy to move this elevator up and down? But then I also think, couldn't you just sort of like almost like a scale? You just kind of apply a little bit more energy on one side, like a counterbalance or something. Yeah, and then the the balance would fall and the elevator would go up. So you'd have like a 2,500 pound counterbalance uh-huh. and uh, then somebody gets on the elevator right? and then you slowly like add more weight to the one side. I don't know. <laughs> it just keep, and it goes up and down. It really, it I doesn't. Think they use electricity now. <laughs> yeah. But I'm still, it's still counterbalanced somewhere. Sure. Sure. Know. Absolutely. A pulley system. Yeah. 
It's a type of vertical transportation machine, as we all know, <laughs> that gets you up and down floors. Uh, what types of other vertical transportation machines? Well, are an there? escalator. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah. Didn't think about that one, did you? I, <laughs> Boat lifts, maybe. <laughs> I love the person coming up with an escalator. It's like, couldn't we just make these stairs move? I don't want to. That's right. I don't want to walk. Well, it's like a moving walkway as well. Yeah, exactly. I want to get from here to there, but I don't want to move. I don't want to move. Let me just stand here. Yeah. I'll make the ground move instead. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, so now they're obviously powered by electricity, mm-hmm. but they used to be hydraulic, steam powered, way, way back, uh, human, human power, uh, or animals or water. Exactly. So you're just pulling on a, yeah. on the pulley and it, and it pulls you up mm-hmm. and, or like an ox goes right. in the other direction. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Or you use water, like a water wheel or something maybe. Mm-hmm. And it gets you going. Uh, the first elevators, they date back. I guess the first time they were written about was back in the first century BC. Uh, but the first usage was Archimedes in three or 253 BC. So, you know, almost 200 years earlier. Uh, he was a, a Greek mathematician. Are we recording? Yep. I always got to check. <laughs> okay. Just, yep. Uh-huh. Uh, he was the first uh, to use, use an elevator. And obviously, I think early on they were used to move materials more so than, than people. Um. They could have been even older, though. In a lot of archaeological dig sites, they found what could be shafts, elevator-type shafts uh, in these ruins. Um, but that's the great perhaps, right? You never know. Maybe maybe they were. Maybe it was something else completely. Maybe it was no something else. Right. They recently used ground-penetrating radar mm-hmm. to reassemble a whole Roman village. Oh, wow. I saw a headline about this. I wonder if they found like any elevator it out shafts. or something? Yeah. Well, even, including, like, water pipes and stuff. Yeah, okay. Uh, but they've, uh, you know, like, like the, the Coliseum had elevators that would raise gladiators mm-hmm. and would raise animals and stuff. And those mm-hmm. were all operated by slaves at the time. Bring a tiger right up That's and right. bite your arm off. Take, try and kill Russell Crowe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but that was super old, right? That was a long time ago. Uh, the first mechanical elevators pre-industrial era were built by Ivan Kulibin, a Russian guy. He put them in some big Russian palaces. He, he, I believe he put two in some Russian palaces and, uh, and then one in London years later. This was like in the late 1700s. Uh, but with the Industrial Revolution and modern technology in the mid-1800s, uh, where we're talking about more hydraulics and electricity and that mm-hmm. kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, an elevator revolution, which I've decided we have my new band name, Elevator Revolution. Evol- <laughs> elevator Revolution. Yeah, I, I like that. It, I called it. Um, so in the mid-1800s, there were a lot of breakthroughs with elevators. In 1845, you had an architect, uh, Gaetano Genovese. He invented this thing called the Royal Chair. It was an elevator fit for a palace, and it was put in a lot of palaces in Italy, right? Uh, it was covered in chestnut on the outside, maple wood on the inside, had a light and two benches. It could be operated from inside or outside of the car. So if you were you know, royalty and didn't think you should be doing anything, you could just sit in the, in the car and it would move for you. Hmm. Yeah. Um, it also had the first safety mechanism. So if the rope broke, it was, uh, a, a spring loaded beam that would shoot out. And so I assume it would just punch through the wall and make sure, you're, <laughs> make sure your car didn't fall. Grab on for dear life. Yeah. yeah. So I guess if it started to fall, something would shoot out and just kind of bolt into the wall. Uh-huh. Uh, in 1852, you had a man by the name of Alicia Otis. And if you know anything about elevators, you know, the name Otis. Mm-hmm. He introduced the safety elevator, which prevented the car from falling. Should the cable break, uh, 
I don't know how his worked. I'm not sure if it was a steel beam that was spring-loaded and shot out as well, but he did demonstrate the mechanism in front of a crowd at the New York Expo in this death-defying stunt. He was standing below the elevator. Yeah, I would imagine. (laughs) Either that or he was in it. I'm not sure which one. That's (laughs) right. He just sat below it and enjoyed his tea. Yeah. Uh, Five years, this was 1852, so five years later, the first of these elevators were installed uh, Hmm. in in New York City. Uh, Interestingly enough, the first elevator shaft preceded the first elevator by, by four years. So uh, a man by the last name Cooper was building his company's building, I guess, headquarters in New York uh, and foresaw that these things were going to be completed at some point. So he built this shaft in his schematics and mm-hmm. his blueprints. Uh, he thought that the elevators were going to be uh, cylindrical. <laughs> this is going to be my exact uh, question <laughs> right. here. It's like, how did you know what the... the uh, specifications of yep. your elevator shaft. So there was a be. problem, right? Yeah. They're going to be cylindrical. They weren't. And so Otis custom made elevators for this man's <laughs> building. Because he had these uh, this idea of tubes, I guess, going up and down. And really, they were more box shaped. Yeah. Very so. forward thinking. I mean, it's a good idea to plan for it. Yeah. I mean, in four Maybe or five Maybe would have reached out to Otis before you built the building. Maybe. Yeah. You you thinking cil- cylinders, cylinders or yeah, boxes? Shape, what what, what are you thinking? <laughs> no, he just said, Otis, he just, he just said, you know what? I'm building. This is going to be a tube for sure. Yeah. Uh, he was wrong. Whatever. He got his elevator anyway. Little did we know that Otis was like a early Steve Jobs, very protective of his design That's ideas. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He wasn't going to tell anybody anything. No, no. Yeah. Very private. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> In 1880, there was a German by the name of Werner von Siemens. He built the first electric elevator. Siemens might ring a bell for you, the giant uh, telecommunications and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. He started that company as well. Hmm. And by 1900, uh, elevators were completely automated, or those were available at least, uh, but the public was slow to adopt them. They were scared, right? They had these, I'm sure early on there were tons of accidents and people yeah. losing limbs or just plummeting to their death or, you know, getting impaled by some kind of uh, mechanism that was supposed to stop the elevator from falling. Yeah. Or the elevator is supposed to be there and they're just stupid and they just walk into the elevator shaft. That too. Maybe. Yeah. I think a lot of people plummet or get crushed. Yeah. 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 Uh, the, this, this change though, in 1945, there was an elevator operator strike. And so people, you know, they they couldn't operate these elevators. They couldn't push the button? Well, I this think there was, was more to it then. There was like, you know, levers and stuff like that. And it was like you just, there wasn't a floor. You stopped when you knew where to stop and that kind of thing. Okay. Right? Okay. Uh, but with the elevator strike, uh, this paved the way for an emergency stop button, an emergency telephone, and a soothing voice that would kind of aid you in operating the machine. Mm-hmm. And this help people become more uh, or become less scared of the of elevators and uh, they took off that and more buildings were being built and people probably got tired of walking up steps right yeah so you're saying but little did the elevator operators know that their strike would just lead to the further advancement of technologies yeah. that would make it easier for the people inside to just push a button right and make them not have a job anymore yeah right. yes mm-hmm. exactly okay. uh so we've kind of talked about the history. We talked about modern age and stuff like that, where we are now. Well, not well. We'll get there. But we talked about you know the 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 mid nineteen hundreds and whatnot. Basically, the modern elevators. Let's talk about some elevator facts. Mm. Yeah, there are more than seven hundred thousand elevators in operation in the United States alone. I think it's actually higher than that. Yeah. Um, they are statistically the safest way to travel. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't sure what they were being compared to. Like, are they being compared to escalators or moving walkways? Well, no. Uh, 
you know, there's a lot of fears of getting stuck in a free fall or being stuck in elevator, stuck in the elevator for a long time, but it's actually safer than riding in a car. Not that you can take an elevator to California, but right. Uh, or you take a car to the top of a building. True. They're, they serve their own individual purposes. Yeah. Uh, on average, 26 people a year die in an elevator-related accident. These are mainly technicians and not passengers. Okay. Yeah. So people um, fixing the elevator, something going on. Right. Okay. While that same number, 26 people die per hour in car-related deaths. Mm, wow. Yeah. This is all coming from a very credible website, not Wikipedia, just the one I found on the internet. I can't remember. <laughs> I think it's called elevatorhistory.net. <laughs> so they've got to be right. Um, Every three days, elevators carry the equivalent of the population on Earth. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Seven billion, more than seven billion people every three days in elevators. I can believe that. Yeah. I mean. Sure. Especially in places like be Asia, way more, like in Japan and There has stuff. to be way more elevators than that. 700,000 in the United States? A, I feel like they're in every building. How many buildings are there in the United States? I mean, there's way more buildings than elevators, obviously, but. There's got to be. And there's also there like in just the building we're in right now. There's four elevators servicing like a 13 story building. Right, but there's not know. that just, many like densely populated areas. Right, that's true. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, if I just look around right now, there's there's probably an elevator in that school right there for sure. There's several in this building across the street. There's right, several in the buildings all around us. I don't know. Maybe we could do a little bit maybe more maybe like napkin math and, yeah. and figure it out. Maybe 700,000 is about right. Okay. Uh, so every elevator is supported by multiple cables. Mm-hmm. Um, you, maybe if you've seen like the bottom of, it, of a lift of a shaft before you've seen that like spool of cables or whatnot. But these each each of those cables is capable of hauling the elevator by itself and, and the passengers inside. So it kind of can quell your fears of like, oh, what if the cable snaps? Like, well, there's there's backups. Several redundant cables right yeah i like that yeah uh the close button which you probably know is a placebo button (laughs) it doesn't do anything anything. you think it's a coincidence (laughs) that every elevator you've been in the close button doesn't work i love that (laughs) it's like oh it worked it's like now you just push it at the same time the door was closing anyway (laughs) i love i I always love psychological uh things like that in technology where they just like they do it just to kind of like make you feel like you're doing something i think at one purpose at one point they they did serve a purpose they Mm -hmm. probably did close the doors but now that they're automated they just leave it there so people feel like they have some kind of power over it right some kind of control well well, i bet they probably created more problems than they solved just oh we're waiting here an extra three seconds to see if somebody gets on right you know like versus oh you push the close button while it was still opening and now the elevators broke we had to call the So that's one thing that uh, one thing the movies get right, I guess. People just you know being chased by a murderer, slamming that close button, yeah, just doesn't work. Well, so anytime I get on an elevator, even if my number is selected, I like to push it again just to let the elevator know (laughs) that I've gotten on, I've pushed the button. Another person's here, ready to go to that. I'm ready to go. Yeah, I'm ready to go. I think there's also uh, like an override combo you can push in most elevators, where if you hold like closed door and your floor and something else it'll take you straight there i think this is for like firefighters or something mm. or like re- like emts or something if they like have s- to get on skip floors that maybe yeah. gotten pushed it overrides that yeah. kind of thing oh right? that'd be a great hacker thing to be able to it's do it's like if you if you get on and you're going up to the 10th floor and there's somebody on the fourth floor that's also going up but maybe they're going like the six because they're lazy mm-hmm. you'd be like oh, i'm not gonna risk it just push this little code in right i, I should have looked that up i just thought about it now though so i can't just be on the internet everyone <laughs> right. would be doing it that's right that's true that's true <laughs> um Elevator music was introduced to calm nervous passengers mm. originally. 
I don't feel like I get on any elevators now that actually have elevator music. No, I haven't heard it in a while. They all have TVs and stuff now. Yeah. <laughs> every, every, they all have TVs. There's a and screen have, everywhere. Yeah. And everyone's just staring at it because right. they're all scared to look at each other. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Well, now it's just two people per elevator, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because of superstition, as you might know, a lot of buildings remove, in quotations, the 13th floor. Mm-hmm. Otis Elevator Company estimates that 85% of the buildings their elevators are in have done this. Wow. Yeah. I think ours has a 13th floor. No, it goes to the 12th. You have to walk up the 13th. Got, yeah. It's something weird about that. It's yeah. not, I don't think it has anything to do with the design of the building no. or superstition, but yeah. Yeah. It's just weird. Yeah. Um, but uh, does the Charleston, were you, I don't, I don't think they do. No, the top floor is 11 or 12. Mm, doesn't go that high? No. Yeah. But thanks for telling everybody where I live. <laughs> <laughs> I live in Charleston. <laughs> um, elevators in the U.S. travel 1.36 billion miles per year. Wow. What do you think about that number? Is that is that close to the 700,000 elevators in the States? Uh, huh. That's probably about right if you if it's 700,000. Yeah. Okay. I don't know how long. Um, you know, like each story is maybe 10 feet. Yeah. I don't know what the average stories, uh, the average height of a building is. Right. I think that's worldwide, though, actually. Oh, no, that's U.S., sorry. But, um, I mean, the moon is 186,000 miles away. Mm-hmm. So that's, I you mean. the moon back several like, times. Many times. Yeah. Billions of times. <laughs> a lot of times. Yeah. Um, there were once, elevators were once called movable rooms, and they had chandeliers and ornate furniture and carpeting and all that kind of oh, stuff. Oh, I would love well. to put a nice little reading chair in there for you. Well, I guess they move like <laughs> two inches per per minute or something. So like, is it like oh, I'm gonna sit down and I like for two seconds and then get up on my floor already. Right, right, right. But yeah, have a nice little lazy boy in there. Yeah, that'd be nice. It'd be great. Have a drink maybe. Uh, so those are just a few elevator facts. There are several unique elevate elevators around the world, and we're gonna talk about a few of them right now. Mm-hmm. You got the Bai Long Elevator in Wulingyuan, China. Uh, it's in a national park there. I cannot pronounce the name of the national park there, but there's a national park there. Uh, I think it's a world, a world heritage site as well or mm-hmm. something. It's got the world's tallest outdoor elevators, 1,070 feet tall. And it takes you up this cliff and has these glass walls that give you a great panoramic view of the tree-topped sandstone peaks that are over there. Wow. So it's pretty cool, I thought. Yeah. You got the Eiffel Tower elevators. Mm-hmm. They first opened in 1889. Right. They kind of, yeah. they move some horizontally as well a little bit yeah and they take you to take you all the way to the top of that thing yeah and i think they were groundbreaking at the time because nothing was able to carry such weight to such great heights and all that kind of stuff yeah the eiffel tower was the first uh thing made out of uh iron i think really it it was um construction yeah and the idea behind it was that this was like the beginning of this new age Mm. and uh you know supposed to to inspire creativity around what you can make out of iron okay uh, and that's why that's that's hey, why they built it. Your confidence convinced me that's true. I'm, I'm pretty sure <laughs> that's why. Very nice. You have the uh, at the Radisson Blue Hotel in Berlin. You have the Aquadom, which is an 82 foot tall elevator made of glass, and it's actually encircled by an aquarium. Oh, that's cool. And so this aquarium uh, has to have daily maintenance and, and feeding the fish by a team of four divers. Oh, that's cool. So yeah. you could be moving through the elevator, and there's like a scuba diver, yeah, down exactly. there cleaning, yeah, feeding a fish or something. <laughs> Uh, the tallest building in the world, or I guess, yeah, building, the Burj Khalifa. It also has the fastest elevator in the world. 
So this elevator moves at 40 miles per hour. Wow. It can reach the top floor, which is 2,038 feet in the air in 35 seconds. Hmm. I didn't do the math before I wrote down that fact. I just took it as fact. Well, would there be ever a time when an elevator could accelerate where you'd feel, you know, you'd have to sit down. Like you'd, you'd feel too much G's, you know, you might have like a, I don't know how fast it accelerates though. Right. Right. If it just gets up to speed. Right. If once you're moving, it's, yeah. you're moving at the same speed, but that acceleration, you could, you could like, you bust it through the force, roof, it, like a Charlie well, and chocolate factory. If it stopped, well, I was going to bring that up in a second, but, <laughs> but yeah, you'd have to sit down. Like the acceleration would be like add to your gravity. Yeah. It's a, yeah, maybe, uh, Got a couple more unique elevators for you. Yeah. Uh, the Luxor Hotel. Oh. You know, it's a giant pyramid. That yeah. thing moves at a, 40, a 39 degree angle. Yeah. Because obviously the roof is pitched like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it has one of the biggest atriums, I think, of any building. Uh, and yeah, so you're moving at a weird angle in that thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have the St. Louis Arch. The elevators move up. This thing is like a five or eight minute ride in one of those things. And they've got it. So you're kind of like in a, it, you're always level in that. Right, so you're like, yeah, it almost has like a, um, it's like a, a gyroscope thing, right? It's like yeah. a Ferris wheel, type right, 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 right. It dangles, yeah, yeah. That's cool. Yeah, never been up there. I and have, yeah, yeah. I was like 15. Hmm. I mean, you're looking, at, you're looking at St. Louis, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you're looking out west. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you have the Umeda Hankyu Hankyu building elevator in Osaka, Japan. This. These cars are enormous. 50 passengers can ride on them at a time or can carry up to five tons of people. And the interesting thing about this is they do this because the first 14 floors of this building are all department stores and above that are office buildings. So mm-hmm. you have to be able to, to you know, move tons of employees up the, up the elevator shaft. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you got these things called uh, Paternoster elevators. Paternoster, have you heard of these? No. They're like the revolving door of elevators. They have like six or eight cars all on this non-stop moving conveyor belt okay and so you just hop on and then hop off wherever you want to get off hmm. i would imagine this is exactly how you lose an arm though yeah i mean if you don't get <laughs> off quick enough right you're stuck i'm sure they move pretty slowly but i think they're really popular like in uh, in europe like in germany hmm. uh and some other places as well seems very cool like yeah don't stop just keep going right yeah i kind of want to like get on one yeah and that'd be cool maybe I'm we should bring those to the u.s there's no way they would ever get I mean, how would those ever get like <laughs> adopted? Yeah, well, that and like they'd be like, no, that's way too dangerous. Yeah, probably. I don't know. Uh, last one the Autostadt silos in Wolfsburg, Germany. So this is right near the Volkswagen headquarters. And they have these 200 foot silos, which are just like giant parking garages almost. So the car goes straight from the production line straight into one of these bays. Mm hmm. And they've, so they've never been driven. So you can go to the, to these like silos and say, Oh, this is the car I want. Purchase it. And the odometer reads zero instead of having been test driven or whatever. Mm-hmm. So hmm. that's pretty cool. I know that I like a uh, CarMax or somebody is doing, they, they have those, like you, they send you like a coin. Uh-huh. It's a whole novelty thing, but it's very similar to this shaft of like a park, a, a parking deck. And then, yeah, the car comes out and it goes down on the conveyor of mm. the elevator and drives out to you and yeah. whatever. That's cool. Yeah. That's a nice little, it's a novelty. Yeah. There's a, uh, there's like a, a Nissan dealership or something on the highway between my hometown and Asheville, North Carolina. And it's got this like seven or eight tiered 
I don't know what to call it, like tower and each tier has a car on it. Mm-hmm. And I've always wondered how they got yeah. the cars up there. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> like the one at the top, there's, I, mean, I guess there's some kind of lift on one side of it that just takes it up and you drive it on or something. Right. But it just looks bizarre. Looks, yeah, it looks funny. Yeah. Well, that's what the, a lot of buildings have like freight elevators. Right. Elevators that are you know, larger. Yeah. And and hospitals yeah, have big elevators. For sure. And a lot of them are, you know, in the interior of the building where all the, like the plumbing and all the electric, uh, the, uh, the wires utilities and, stuff, and stuff. utilities and all that chronic yeah. is as well mm-hmm. so we'll close this off with what you do if you get stuck in an elevator yeah so first is this something you should be worried about how often does it happen <laughs> i think it happens kind of a lot so the odds of getting stuck are one in a hundred thousand really but you probably ride it a lot right i mean i don't know if i've taken a hundred thousand rides in my life or if i will but ibm did a study in 2010 that showed it, so it does happen. That number I think is a little bit misleading because it does happen pretty often. I think. Well, yeah. Could you define? Do they define what stuck means? Is that like longer than five minutes or something? So they did the study in 2010 that showed that office workers across 16 major cities that year spent a combined 33 years stuck in elevators, <laughs> <laughs> and 22% of those were stuck uh, for longer than 10 minutes. Mm. So hmm. I guess stuck. I mean, like, there must be some you know, cutoff point at the, at the bottom end, like, oh, if it's not moving for a minute or something, that's considered stuck, right? Right, right. All right. So the first thing you want to do, uh, stay calm. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. You're, I like to freak out. You're trapped in a small space. There may be alarms going off. You might freak out a little bit, but that's not going to help you, help anything. Yeah. Out, right. You should also know that free fall is pretty much impossible. One, because of the giant metal beam that we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but two, uh, there are emergency brakes that won't allow for free fall to happen in pretty much every elevator. What if Dennis Hopper is in the elevator next to me and he wants to blow it up for $3 million? Well, if, if you do go into free fall, just make sure you jump right at the last second. <laughs> That'll save me. <laughs> yeah. Well, Keanu will come save me. Yeah. Yeah. You get Keanu, Keanu will be there. Up. That's right. Yeah. It'd be great. Uh, step two, use the emergency phone or the emergency call button. Mm-hmm. Uh, every elevator should have an emergency phone or emergency call button that will either put you in touch with the building security or the elevator company. Uh, tell them what the deal is. I have at this address. I'm stuck in an elevator. <laughs> That's step two. <laughs> step three, don't jump or pry the doors open. Don't treat it like an old TV where you knock it on the side and try to get it to work. Start but, hitting it. Yeah, probably will just make it uh, mess it up more. Mm-hmm. Right. Also, if you like open up the doors, you're probably going to just hurt yourself. You might be in between yeah. floors. Yeah. yeah. Don't try to escape through the emergency hatch. <laughs> <laughs> Shouldn't, is, that in the, is that in the top? A lot of them don't have them anymore, I think, but also most of them that did were bolted from the outside anyway. Uh, you, you see, that, you see that in movies. Though. Yeah, don't get into the shaft. Yeah. Especially if it starts moving again. Oh, you're, yeah. You're doomed. Yeah. Yeah. Or if an uh, elevator above you, which I guess aren't ele- there's only one car per shaft, I guess, right? Yeah. I think. Yeah. Well, I think in some buildings, uh, you know how some elevators will only go to certain floors? Yeah, that's true. Maybe. So maybe they're- Share a shaft? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Step four or five, I don't know what step I'm on. Call 911. (laughs) Uh, Assuming you have a cell phone and have service, go ahead and give them a call. They'll likely arrive quicker than the elevator company would anyway. Uh, And then, you know, you just got to wait. I believe in the office, Dwight Schrute, his first step was to develop a pee corner. <laughs> so you needed to go ahead and mark a territory for where you'll be using the bathroom should you be stuck in there. Uh-huh. People have been stuck for like 
you know, days at a time in these things. Days? Yeah. Wow. I'm sure they were able to like get them some like food and water somehow, but they couldn't get the elevator moving. Hmm. Yep. At that point, I just, I would pry it open. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I, I would at least risk it. Risk it. Yeah, yeah. I would at least, I'm getting out of this elevator. Yeah. I just have like visions of being chopped in half. Oh yeah. That would be horrible. That paternoster, man. That thing would just chop you in half. Yeah. <laughs> I'm scared of revolving doors sometimes. Yeah. And you're like pulling your hands in. Yep. You know, yeah, this can be scary as well. Yeah. So that's a little bit about elevators for you today. Yeah. Uh, well, you had brought up the Willy Wonka. Oh, yeah. The, what is it called? The, the Great Glass Elevator. Yeah. Just but like the second book. Yeah. But didn't he, I'm just thinking of the movie. Didn't he like, it's like oh, go I, anywhere, Vader, whatever. Yeah, probably. And then I only had one other thought was somebody, I haven't been to Hawaii, but I've, I've heard that there's a hotel there that has like a water elevator. So it's like a shaft that they just fill up. I don't oh, okay. I don't think they do this to go to your room or something. Right. But it's like maybe it takes you up one floor and you could maybe it's like a cycle of like every 15 minutes if you want to you you can go in this water elevator and sit there like a hot tub kind of thing and it huh. takes you up to the next level and then brings oh, oh, you right like back. Oh, you're down. surrounded by water and it fills up and you just kind right. of float to the top. Right, exactly. That's kind of fun. Yeah. Well, and then I read also there's a like a vacuum elevator in Argentina. It sucks like, you up. Yeah. Oh wow. Like a, that's really cool. <laughs> it's like so you're it's, basically like a envelope in a in a teller machine. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That's awesome. I always thought those are awesome. Oh, those things are so. Well, cool. for me, it was just a, a magical way to get like a sucker delivered to me. Like a, a lollipop <laughs> would just come out of this tube. Right. Right. Just. <laughs> vroom. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, that's basically what Elon Musk wants to do to it. all of us across right. the country, right? With right. the hyperloop. Yeah. Whatever. That's a good topic. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Never thought you'd be talking about elevators today, did you? I admit, I it, the idea had crossed my mind to cover them. <laughs> okay, but uh, honestly, I'm, I, I think you covered it better than I could have. I was like, "Yep, this is an elevator." All right. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that elevators, the the signage that shows how much weight it can hold, do you think that that's low, or do you like it's like really it can take twice this amount, but they just say twenty five hundred pounds. Uh, to yeah, make it so people don't test it. Well, they know people are going to break, like aren't going to listen to that anyway, right? That, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I don't know. Probably. I bet they can hold. They can haul a lot more. And if they couldn't, I bet they would just shut off. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Probably so. I have to call Otis about. Well, this. and you know, I've been on elevators before. <laughs> wasn't because of me, but they start beeping, mm-hmm. and then you have to get somebody off. Or right. Or right. Move. Right. That happens a lot in Argentina. Those elevators <laughs> are freaky down there. They, they still have like the, <clears throat> it's not an automatic door. You have to like open the inside and then it's, open the outside. And it yeah, won't yeah. start until the inside doors or both doors are closed. Uh-huh. If you leave it open, the loud ass alarm goes off and your neighbors get mad at you. <laughs> yeah. Just take the stairs. That's right. <laughs> not worth it. Yeah. Well, that's a good topic. Thank you. Michael, one thing I learned this week was that, uh, you know, recaptcha, recaptcha, uh, when you're proving, uh, when you're like signing into Just something. Just captcha. Cap- capture. Well, then there was recaptcha, uh-huh. and then there was no capture, recaptcha. There was a bunch of like these different okay. forms. Do you, what do you think? Do you know what captcha stands for? Yeah, it's like saying capture. It's like capturing that you're not a robot. <laughs> it does capture that, uh, but it no means it uh, completely automated public Turing test to tell computers and humans apart. Ah. It was created by a Guatemalan mathematician and his team. At Carnegie Mellon, the mathematician's name was Louis Von Ahn. Kind of an odd, yeah. odd name for a Guatemalan, I thought. Yeah. Um, 
genius guy. Supposedly, there's a story about Bill Gates trying to get like spending 30 minutes of his time on the phone with this guy trying to get him to come work for Google or for Microsoft. Uh, and huh. he was like, no, I don't want to go to that. <laughs> um, but he created this, uh, he, cre- he created reCAPTCHA as a way to, um, or he created CAPTCHA. Right. ReCAPTCHA is uh, the R-E CAPTCHA is when they show you two words and they're like kind of, um, almost look like they're scanned from a book. Yeah. It's because they are scanned from a book. Huh. And so what you're actually doing is you're helping Google basically translate a bunch of texts okay. that they've scanned and old um, New York Times articles that were printed and then they need to be digitized. Right. So what you're really doing is you're free labor for Google translating. They've they've tr- they've digitized millions of books this way. Okay, but does it actually keep people keep robots from accessing stuff? Oh yeah, it okay. complete it. Now that comp- like it's a constant war, yeah. right? The computers have gotten much better, but up yeah. until this point, like there was a massive spam problem, and then they introduced these things and it fixed it. Yeah, sold it for twenty million dollars to. That's um, it. I know. Seems I, cheap. I know. I think that I think he had to work at Google for a while. Hmm. So he's, he he's he's he also he then went on to start Duolingo. Okay. He's worth seven hundred million dollars. Yeah. He's a smart guy. Yes. Um. But yeah, he kind of. What I find so interesting is that he created this technology that was able to, like, solve one problem while creating revenue, and it's like this yeah. perfect little solution. <clears throat> um, interesting. Yeah, it was kind of cool, huh? Yeah. Yeah. That's capture. One thing I learned this week is that Michael Jordan, his heiress, fancies himself a fisher. Mm. Fisherman. <laughs> uh, he's participating in the Big Rock Blue Marlin Tournament mm-hmm. um, in Moorhead City, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And this week, I believe it was two days ago, the, uh, so the tournament runs through the 13th. And there are several different divisions, but they're trying to bring in uh, Blue Marlin weight. So the, the heaviest Blue Marlin that they can bring in. I just had really bad deja vu right now. Really? <laughs> I've never talked about this, obviously, because it's something that just happened this week. But anyway, uh, the, their boat came into port. His boat, Catch 23, came into port uh, a couple of days ago with a 442.3 pound blue marlin. I take it that's big marlin. That's a big marlin, but it was only fifth place, and now it's in sixth place. Wow. Yeah. So right now, the leaderboard, the the biggest fish right now is 492 pounds, I believe. Mm-hmm. Let me see. God, that's a big fish. Yeah, 494.2 pounds is the, is the leader right now. And and Jordan's team, I mean, that's 50 pounds lighter. They're at 442.3. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So are they still going out yep. trying to catch? Yep. Uh, you can, like, the, the Big Rock uh, website's awesome. You can see, like, uh, their whole history. Like, so on day one, they they weighed in their 442. They boated a Blue Marlin. They hooked up, all that kind of stuff. You can see the timeline of when they did all this stuff, mm-hmm. which is pretty cool. That's really cool. Yeah. It's cool that he goes out there with them. Yeah, I mean, he's part of the team, right? So he's got, I guess he's the boat owner. And so they'll split the winnings. I think the captain will take the most, the majority of it, and then the rest of the crew. I think it's probably a four or five man crew, but there's like, it's a $3.4 million in tournament winnings. I was going to say, that's a lot. Big prize pool. Yeah, yeah, Big Rock's a big tournament. It's really cool. My my dad's family, they have a house at Atlantic Beach, which is right there at Moorhead City. And you can, they can go down there and see them bring the, bring the fish in and all that kind of yeah. stuff. You ever been to that? Uh, I haven't been to the Big Rock. I've seen like where they bring it in and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, but it's huge. So I haven't really been up there much in June. Or if I was, I was at the beach playing in the sand or something. Mm-hmm. So, well, Michael Jordan still trying to win. That's right. He's yeah. probably pissed that he's in sixth place right now. That's right. Yeah. So I know we've had mixed success doing uh, figures of history, uh-huh. but we all know this person. Okay. Michael, tell me what you know about Babe Ruth. 
Babe Ruth. Candy Bar. Uh-huh. Baby Ruth? Yeah. Uh, Great Bambino. He's a baseball player for the, the Red Sox and the Yankees. Mm-hmm. Kind of a pudgy little dude. Somewhat little. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> Drinking beer and eating hot dogs during games. <laughs> smashing home runs. Uh, his first name escapes me right now. Oh, yeah. 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 He's only really known by a baby. Yeah. William. No. It's another very... George. George Herman Ruth. There you go. There you go. Yep. George Herman Ruth. Could not think of it for a second there. Yep. Uh, Yeah. I mean, an icon of of America's pastime. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I know. It's sort of like, where do you start? 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 Yeah. Um, He's a pretty interesting guy. Okay. It's a pretty interesting... Kind of looks like a pig. A little piggy boy. Yeah. He does have a little pig vibe to him, Uh, which is a part of why... We'll get to a, a little bit of why he was nicknamed babe mm. um and we'll, we'll get into it a little bit let's let's go back to his early life to see where he came from how did he uh become who he was uh so yeah you're right born george herman ruth yeah uh he was born in 1895 in pigtown section of baltimore maryland pigtown pigtown i know are. exactly all this yeah. this is not why he's called babe though yeah uh pigtown was a place where there were a bunch of butchers in okay. this in this part of the town um he looks like he should be a butcher he yeah look like yeah. a baseball player yeah if he wasn't, you know, sending dongs yeah. out, he was, he was, <laughs> he, said, well, he wasn't hitting dingers. There you go. Uh, German ancestry. He okay. spoke German at home when he was younger. His okay. uh, dad's side of the family was, was German. Um, only one of his seven siblings survived infancy. How crazy is that? Yeah. Isn't that crazy? That is kind of weird. I mean, that's a bad, Whoa, that's a bad batting average. Yeah. What's the, what's the, what's the date again? Uh, 1895 is when he was born. Well, hold on. Two for seven. That's 285, right? It's not too bad. Well, I just mean for kids. Yeah. It's a yeah. bad batting average for kids. <laughs> yes. I bet, well, no, you, it's a bad average for kids. Great batting average. Great batting average. <laughs> yes. Almost Hall of Fame batting average. <laughs> that is true. Um, his father worked uh, several kind of odd jobs for a while. He was a lightning rod salesman. Okay. Uh, he was a streetcar operator uh-huh. and then he became involved in a grocery and saloon business uh, and uh, when the family moved from the Pigtown section of Baltimore to this other place the, they lived above this saloon that the, the dad would operate Okay, so um, they moved when he was a toddler there and he stayed living there with his parents until he was seven um, and obviously I think you could understand Living above a bar might not be the best place for a kid. Right. So he kind of became kind of, he was already like kind of a delinquent, a troublemaker. Mm-hmm. Living above a bar, he would like, you know, drink beer while his dad wasn't watching and, and whatnot. Supposedly there was a physical altercation. Uh, and after this, the state was kind of like, you can't live around here anymore. And they sent him to the St. Mary's Industrial School for Boys, which is a reformatory and orphanage. Okay. Uh, and he stayed there for 12 years, so pretty oh, wow. much until he was 19. Yeah. Um, but it was a very like formative place for him. So uh, it's kind of funny. He was a delinquent uh, and still pretty much was while he was at school. But he became um, sort of like an apprentice a men- and used the mentor at the school who was the delinquent officer, basically, like okay. in charge of discipline. Uh, and he really liked him because uh, this guy, his name was... Um, uh, brother Matthias Bootlier, Bootlier. I don't know okay. exactly how it goes. He's from Nova Scotia, and ah. uh, and Ruth was said to have said um, he was said to have said 
Yes. Uh, I was born to be a hitter the first day I ever saw him hit a baseball. So uh, this guy would just crush baseball. Supposedly. Gotcha. A Nova Scotian. Uh, yeah. Just this big guy. So with discipline, he would always like, I think he was hard on Ruth, but obviously like saw a lot of potential with him and kind of fostered the, the, the legend is that he kind of got him into baseball. Gotcha. Um, he also, this kind of interesting fact about him. So the, the boys at the school were also sort of the operators of the school, like the caretakers. So everybody had a job. Mm-hmm. So he was also a uh, shirt maker and he was a proficient carpenter. Yeah. And supposedly he would, you know, alter his shirt collars. Yeah. Even when he was, you know, a millionaire baseball player or whatever, yeah. how much money he had. He would do his own. He would do, yeah, he would, he would tailor his own clothes. and alterations. Yeah. How funny is that? Huh. Um, yeah, so very strict punishment there. Uh, a lot of corporal punishment. Maybe you get hit at, with, the, at, at the at the school. industrial boys' school. Yeah, um, there were uh, there was a school set up by the I've never heard of these people before the Xaverian brothers. Uh, it's a sect of the Roman Catholic Church. Okay, but uh, he was a lifelong Catholic uh, after this, and and when he was traveling around baseball, he would often go to orphanages. Uh, in churches and not, you know, bring his celebrity or bring press with him, but they would just go visit kids. There's actually yeah. a, a story of um, a boy with, with cancer and he promised that this, he would hit a homer right. in the game. It was like a little legend about him. Yeah. A lot of what I'd find of, found looking into him is that um, kind of made me think of this quote that was in a movie called like, you know, when the legend becomes fact, you print, print the legend. Uh-huh. So I feel like a lot of these stories, because, uh, he was such an icon and so widely known worldwide that so many of the stories might have been hyperbole, but they probably all came from somewhere from some sort of fact. Yeah. And because there wasn't, you know, televised right. games and television, it was all kind of through the radio and through the color that was created by sports writers. He just kind of became this legend. Yeah. People were probably like the legend of Babe Ruth probably altered their memory of what actually happened in their interactions with him. Exactly. Yeah. And that, and that's a kind of a, a common through line through a lot of even his baseball uh-huh. tales, even though he was probably one of the best play, baseball players of all time. Sure. Um, even his stats, even through today still hold up. We'll right. get to those later. Um, so yeah, he was growing up in, in this, uh, Catholic school, Catholic church or, um, you know, orphanage. Yep. And, um, really showing off. He was the best pitcher. Uh, yeah. He was a lefty, lefty pitcher, lefty hitter. Mm-hmm. Um, and he started to get like, he got allowed out of the school when he was 18 to start going and playing in like some minor league games, some community games uh, in, in Baltimore. Yeah. So then uh, the owner of the Baltimore Orioles, uh, which was a minor league team at the time, uh, was this guy named Jack Dunn. Okay. And so he... It's kind of legend again how he exactly found Babe Ruth, uh, but supposedly he worked out for 30 minutes for him, and Jack Dunn offered him a contract. Okay. So this was in 1914. Yeah. So 1914 is the beginning of World War One. Yeah. Obviously, the U.S. doesn't get in until a little later, but that's sort of what's going on in the world and mm-hmm. where things are. Um, he kind of talk about his size: six two, two fifteen, big guy. Um, he entered spring training in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Wait, two fifteen, six two, two fifteen. Yeah, his body type was very weird. Oh Sorry, yeah, not weird. It oh, was yeah. like uh, he was—he must have been like all legs and it's like a really like plump torso or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that probably was pretty true. And I, yeah, I mean, he definitely—he wasn't an athlete in the way right. we see athletes today. No. You know, but he was still just a powerhouse. Like he—he he would hit five hundred foot 
yeah. uh, home runs mm-hmm. and stuff. I mean, he had a lot of power. Uh, I kind of always thought of him as like, almost like old man strength. You just kind of right. have this like, how did you get all this? Probably from the hardening he got at St. Mary's School. You yeah. Know? <laughs> um, so yeah, so he's 18. He, he moves down to Fayetteville, North Carolina, joins the the team. The veterans there gave him all, like, a lot of these nicknames. So the the, the vets there... Uh, were the first ones they think to give him the term babe. Okay. But babe was also sort of a common name at the time. Okay. Like people would often call people babes. Like, like you had a baby face, so you might be called babe. Mm-hmm. There was this other uh, pitcher for the Pittsburgh Pirates named Babe Adams. Uh, he was probably the most famous babe at the time. Uh, and then there's also thought that they were kind of teasing him because uh, they called him like Dunn's babe. Like, so the owner, he's like, oh, the gotcha. owner just loves you so much. Yeah, like, yeah. You're Dunn's babe. Uh, so that's how we got the... and. He had one other thing. He kind of going to your point about like kind of pig pig like. He kind of he didn't have very many manners, and he didn't know how to really conduct himself in hotels and restaurants. Yeah, so he might be just be like stuffing his face full of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so they called him Babe again. Um, so Jack Dunn got into some financial troubles. The league was also being um, there was a lot of competition. There were multiple leagues going on at this time. So I think there was sort of a vying for who was going to be the major league team and kind of how these minor leagues fit into mm-hmm. that. Uh, so Jack Dunn kind of got into some financial troubles and he had to sell Babe Ruth. Uh, and he sold uh, Ruth and a couple other pitchers to the Boston Red Sox. So he goes up to Boston. Um, he won his first game pitching. But he lost his second game. The manager there was this guy, Bill Kerrigan. Okay. Uh, he was also the catcher. Ah. So he was a player and manager. Yeah. Like LeBron James. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> player coach. Um, yeah, exactly. And uh, Kerrigan actually liked another pitcher who came with the trade. This guy, Ernie Shore. I'll tell you something about Ernie Shore. Please. The minor league baseball stadium in Winston-Salem, the old one was called Ernie Shore Field. Oh. Yeah. It's where the Winston-Salem Spirits and then the Winston-Salem Warthogs played their games. Oh. Now they're the Winston-Salem Dash and they play in a new ballpark downtown. Yeah. I mean, North Carolina is like the the minor league baseball. (laughs) That's right. Carolina leagues. Yeah. Um, He went 0 for 2 in his first game. Sucks. One strikeout and uh, a pinch hitter came in for him because he was a pitcher yeah. at the time. So, like, he kind of – he didn't really get to show off his hitting prowess, prowess even though he was known for, like, really hitting big homers. Like, he had just a lot of power. Um, so, they came up to Boston on July 4th. Uh, the Boston Red Sox were in last place. Started a – just a real come-from-behind season. Yeah. Uh, and they ended up taking him to the World Series. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so – Boston was also the 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 Braves were in Boston at that time as well, and they were kind of again competition for popularity amongst the people of Boston, and so this kind of this comeback again put a little bit more spotlight onto Babe Ruth, but Babe Ruth kind of knocked heads with some of the players there. Uh, he kind of Babe Ruth had uh, this whole like brash attitude. He was a rookie, and that oftentimes you know doesn't get. Um, doesn't mesh well with some of the older veterans. Like he wanted to take batting practice, right? And the vets were kind of like, "You're a pitcher. Why are you coming out here to take batting practice?" Right. And he, you know, just insisted. Um, they would often uh, they would saw his bats in half, oh. so he couldn't. Bullies. Yeah, a little bit. Just a little bit of rookie hazing. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Um, he was sent down to Providence, which is another minor league team, uh, and there was some of some controversy around this, but. Supposedly, they sent him down to Providence because they wanted him to help them win the pennant mm. in their league. So, <laughs> it, it was also kind of thought that maybe they sent him down because they just didn't like him. Mm. Maybe it was a, maybe it was a mixture of all this stuff. Uh, but he was under a coach there named Wild Bill Donovan. 
Uh, and Wild Bill really taught him about the game, taught him how to pitch. Mm-hmm. Supposedly, when he was pitching, he if he was throwing a curve when he was younger, he would like stick his tongue out as like a dead giveaway. Too many tells. Yeah, too many tells. So he kind of taught him a little bit about the game. <laughs> um, when World War One came up, they had a lot of draft. A lot of pe- a lot of players had to enter the draft. Mm-hmm. He did enter the draft, but his number didn't get pulled, so he just kind of got lucky there. I think. Okay. Uh, he did end up uh, serving in the New York Army National Guard. I, I'm not really sure what he did, but I I did want to see what happened there. Why mm-hmm. why wasn't he a part of the military? But uh, he, I think he kind of just got lucky. But with World War One coming up, a lot of players went off to to war, had to go serve. So it kind of opened up some opportunities for him to right. either change and get more playing time. It was around this time that he made the move to first base and outfield. So he, he started getting a ton more at-bats, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about the move to New York yeah. and uh, the curse of the Bambino. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Boston was owned by a New Yorker named Harry Frazzy, F-R-A-Z-Z-E-E. Mm-hmm. And uh, Frazzy was kind of this, this rich guy. He owned the team, but he also produced a lot of Broadway plays. And it was thought that he had gotten into some financial troubles and needed to finance some Broadway play. Right. So he was kind of looking to make deals with the players he had, trading them around, and maybe maybe selling the team. But uh, there weren't, again, at this time, a lot of buyers for him. Anyways, he made a deal with Jacob Rupert and Colonel Tillinghast Huston, who owned the Yankees. Uh, they signed him for $100,000, mm-hmm. uh, plus a $350,000 secured mortgage on Feb- Fenway Park. Oh. Um, and this was all contingent on Ruth signing the contract, which he gladly did. Right. Uh, they gave him, I think, twenty grand over two years, uh, so ten thousand yeah. for two years. Uh, and this was dubbed, you know, the curse of the Bambino. Everyone was the writers were kind of like, this was the steal of the century. Mm-hmm. You got this amazing player, and um, and it turned out to be pretty much a curse. The Red Sox won five of the first sixteen World Series up to that point. And then they didn't win a pennant until 1946, and they didn't win a World Series until obviously 2004. 2004. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, quite a drought after having such a rich, I mean, right. they dominated. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I I kind of tried to find if if he had animosity towards Boston. I don't think he did. I think I think he knew he was worth more, and he was he he and a lot of other players were trying to negotiate for more money. Right. Uh, which this guy didn't want to give him because. You just maybe didn't have it. Right. Uh, and also kind of maybe beginning of a mutiny. If everyone wants more money, how am I going to yeah. do this? But I don't, I don't think he, like, Turner was like, you will rue the day you traded me to New York. Like, right. I don't think he cared. I think he <clears throat> was excited to go to New York. Um, We're not going to go into his full career because it is very uh, long. Right. And, but he let's just go into some of his career stats. Okay. Uh, so Ruth retired at the end of 1937. Uh, after the 1937 season, uh, he played 22 seasons in the in Major League Baseball. So he retired with a 342 batting average, 714 home runs, mm-hmm. 2,873 hits, 2,213 RBIs, a pitching record of 94 wins and 46 losses. He had a 2.28 ERA. He was first in all-time slugging percentage. First in on-base and slugging, still to today. Mm-hmm. Second in RBIs. Second all-time on-base percentage. Fourth on all-times run list. And third in homers right now behind Barry Bonds and Hank Aaron. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, just an absolute powerhouse. 
Yeah, and he held that home run, home run record for years. Yeah, years and years. And I mean, the next person on that list for a long time was way below him. Mm-hmm. He he had the home run record when I think he was in his early twenties. So every time he hit home runs, he was just adding to his right. own record, right? Um, there's obviously the uh, very memorable story about him calling a shot, right? So everyone can see him, you know, standing at bat with his finger up into the the bleachers, right? This came from the 1932 World Series. Yeah, FDR was not president yet, but he was in attendance as the Democratic nominee. It was a game three against Chicago in Chicago against the Cubs. Bad blood between the teams. Yeah, there was a player that was on the I forget I forget I didn't write it down, but I'm thinking of it right now. It was a player on the Yankees who then moved to Chicago. They had won a World Series with them, and they only gave him a half World Series uh, like <laughs> commendation. Yeah, because uh, they just didn't like him. There was just a lot of bad blood here. They all gave him a, a pocket watch with no cover on it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's in the mail. Yeah. Um, so they had actually won the first two games in New York, and then they took the train to Chicago. A lot of bad blood. People were throwing lemons at him, getting off the train, screaming stuff at him. Lemons? At the time, it was a big curse, a, wow. bit, a bad uh, bad thing yeah. to do to somebody. Okay. Uh, and so in the fifth inning of the game, Ruth uh, – well, in the fourth inning, Ruth made an error in the outfield. And it allowed them to tie four to four. Yeah. So fifth inning, he came in, and the story and the legend goes, he gestures to center field. Okay. <clears throat> a player on the team in 1999 who was the last living member of the team says he didn't do it. Yeah, I was ancient there, at that point. Yeah, maybe he doesn't remember. <laughs> but as the story goes, amid boos and screams, he gestures to center field. And then he hits a 500-foot home run right it's an absolute shot and uh and it just added to his legend i mean this guy kind of goes down to me with like a michael jordan a tiger woods sure babe ruth right yeah so just an absolute animal which leads to all the nicknames that he has i've seen sandlot and i'm gonna play sandlot right now (laughs) smalls you mean to tell me that you went home and swiped a ball that was signed by babe Ruth, and you brought it out here and actually played with it? And actually played with it? Yeah! Yeah, but I was gonna bring it back! But it was signed by Babe Ruth! Yeah, yeah, you keep telling me that! Who is she? What? What? The Sultan of Swat! The King of Crash! The Colossus of Clout! The Colossus of Clout! Babe Ruth! The Great Bambino! New York had a lot of Italians. Bambino means boy in Italian. Okay. Great, great boy. All right. Uh, the Colossus of Clout. John, I mean, so did you know, I feel like whenever I hear people use the word clout these days, it just means kind of like- They're an influencer. They're influencer, the power you have. Yeah. Clout is a verb, also it just means to hit. Okay. Or, or it can be a noun like clout, like, like a smash. Okay. So Colossus of Clout, just means you're a giant at hitting balls, uh-huh. basically. Yeah. Just simple as that. Makes sense. Uh, Sultan of SWAT. Uh, you know, again, pretty self-explanatory. Yeah, it's all about him just smashing homers. All of these are. King just of like, Crash. King of Crash. The Big Bam. The Behemoth of Bust. One of my favorite Titan of here, Terror. The Titan of Terror. Uh, terrible Titan. Wally of Wallop. Prince of Powders. <laughs> that was for something else. 
Prince of Powders was he turned people to dust and he was just like, you were so easily just. That's what he told his mother it meant. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that really was going on right now. He was just drinking a ton of beer. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. The Raja of Rap, the Maharaja of Mash, (laughs) the Wazir of Wham, Caliph of Clout. And one of my favorites was one that he was given by one of his teammates, Benny Bengo, uh, was just Jedge, which is like short form of George. Jedge. (laughs) <laughs> all right so that's, that's kind of cool yeah um yeah so all these nicknames just kind of add to his uh, legend i guess yeah. um so as you everyone knows about him his personal life and you know he was, he was a partier right so this is kind of in contrast to his strict catholic upbringing uh there are legends of of bathtubs filled with beer in every hotel he would ever go into uh, when he was younger, he married a woman, Helen Woodford. Uh, they adopted a daughter, Dorothy. Dorothy ended up being his child with another woman, mm. Juanita Jennings. And that didn't come out until years later. Yeah. Um, him and Helen separated because of these constant infidelities. Uh, and she actually died in, a ni- in 1929 in a house fire mm. in Connecticut. He then, three months later, married actress Claire Merritt Hodgson in 1929 uh they were married until until they both died uh he still chased a ton of women during all this time but you know i I think for her she kind of was a little bit more uh with the she understood what she was getting sure maybe put it that way not saying it's right um the yankees actually hired a private eye to follow him one afternoon one night yeah and he said he was with six women in one night and they, ma- they later made him sign a morals clause because he had kind of a bad season. Uh, they made him sign a morals clause, which prohibited him from drinking and staying up past 1 a.m. during training and the season. Okay. And uh, Babe Ruth is quoted as saying, I'll promise to go easier on drinking and to get to bed earlier, but not for you. $50,000 or $250,000, I'll give up women. They're too much fun. <laughs> That's okay. what he said. All right. Um. Babe Ruth, he died in 1948 of a tumor. Okay. Um, he was only in his 50s. Yeah. Uh, there was an open casket memorial where 77,000 people filed past to pay tribute. Good God. Yeah. And at his funeral, 75,000 people were waiting outside. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, That's a lot of folks. His gravesite is in Hawthorne, New York, next to his wife, Claire. Uh so let's maybe talk a little bit about the legacy of him. Okay. Um, he was like an American icon. In World War II, uh, the Japanese soldiers would sometimes yell at uh, the Americans, like, to the hell, the hell with Babe Ruth kind of thing. Mm. And he had said some bad things back. We're going to sure. let that blood lie. But it just goes to show, like, if, worldwide, if you wanted to say something bad to an American, you would insult Babe Ruth. Yeah. Um, he sort of ha- also fit his time in American history as well, right? So World War Two was World War One was ending, and he kind of started his rise of coming out of youth and becoming a much better baseball player. Uh, the men were returning home from war. The 1918 pandemic was sort of going on and kind of coming to a close. So there was just sort of this desire to have something happy to look at. And he was just, he sort of filled this void that people could just be, wow, like he's such a spectacle. He's hitting these gigantic homers. Uh, and in the 1920s, home, home runs just weren't as frequent. Right. Um, and so like there was a lot more like small ball 
mm-hmm. uh, being played. And he, so he was sort of a novelty to come in and just hit 500 foot home runs. I seen the first slam dunk. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly like that. Um, the other, the other kind of athletes at the time that had this sort of level of popularity were uh, boxer Jack Dempsey and the horse Man of War. So it was like <laughs> these three. It was a horse and two guys. Right. Um, he actually he changed the game uh, by hitting so many home runs. He was also one of the most prolific bunters. I didn't realize this. For the Yankees, he was like the most successful bunter. So I guess maybe you guys were playing him back. In terms of like sacks and in terms of sacrifices or in terms of getting on? I think maybe in, in terms of getting on. Yeah. I just read he was he was a great bunter. A, a great bunter. Yeah. Uh, the beginning of this, you mentioned the Babe Ruth candy bar. Yeah. Baby Ruth's. Uh, it is currently the official can, candy of the MLB. I don't know if you knew that. Really? Uh, really? Was, yeah. Is yeah. Cracker Jack not considered a candy? I don't know. Maybe that's a snack. Yeah. It's caramel. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, unfortunately, under Trump, good for him. He was given the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Wow. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> not to be political. Very well deserved. Uh, he also has some of the highest valued memorabilia. Uh, his 1920 Yankee jersey sold for $4.4 million. Yeah. Uh, the bat, which he hit his first home run in Yankee Stadium, went for $1.25 million. Okay. And Charlie Sheen sold Babe Ruth's 1927 World Series ring, uh, which the 1927 uh, team was known as like one of the best teams ever. Sure. A lot of mashers. Murderer's Row mm-hmm. is what they were nicknamed. He sold um, his World Series ring for $2.09 million, Charlie Sheen. When was this during Charlie Sheen's renaissance a few years ago? This was, I didn't, I forget the exact date. I wonder what he might have needed money for. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. It was the, one of the largest memorabilia sales of all time. Okay. At that, at that time. Obviously, the jersey uh, for $4.4 million is quite a lot. He wore number three. I didn't really mention that, but he was yeah. number three. Um, and yeah, that's that's Babe Ruth and sort of a quick, quick rundown. Very nice. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, good old George Herman. George Herman. Very good. And I feel like people our age, like guys our age, like Sandlot was just so popular too. It kind of, again, just introduced everybody to the legend of Babe Ruth. Yeah. Everybody knows Babe Ruth though. Yeah. Yeah. The great Bambi. Yeah. That wimpy deer. (laughs) Who is she? (laughs) (laughs) Great topic. That's it for this week's episode. Make sure to like and subscribe if you enjoyed it. You can follow us on Instagram at TMWYK underscore podcast and on Twitter at TMWYK pod. Have a great weekend and we'll see all you beautiful people for a new episode next Friday.